0: Women of War is recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to Elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This podcast contains references to violence and atrocities committed against Indigenous men, women and children in Australia over the course of the last 200 years. It also contains the names and voices of Indigenous people who have passed away, as well as some coarse language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. I'm Hannah, and we did not think this introduction through, and I have nothing interesting to say about myself. And I'm Nicola, who's very interesting, probably. Yay! Hurrah! <laughs> Hopefully we're interesting. Welcome to Women of War, where we go back in time and discuss the women throughout history who have been involved in the traditionally masculine field of war. This week, we're in the 1800s in Australia, examining a woman who led warriors against the British colonisation of Tasmania. Her name was Tara Hannah and I are committed to researching and sharing the stories of multiple women of colour, both Indigenous
1: and non-Indigenous, in wars throughout history. We will be doing many stories about such women over the course of this podcast, with all the sensitivity and respect these stories deserve, except we may have trouble pronouncing some of the names. We have done our best. We will include both colonial frontier wars, and times women of colour and Indigenous women were involved in more recent conflicts, such as Udgaru Nunakal and her work during World War II. If you are a person of colour or a member of a community we discuss, we welcome your feedback and input. We know this isn't a static process and we'll continue to educate ourselves as we research and promise to continually challenge our own perspectives and decisions.
0: So at the start of this podcast, we did an acknowledgement of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who were the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waters upon which we live and work. As we said, sovereignty was never ceded. So in addition, we just want to clarify this for some of our international viewers, listeners, something. (laughs) So for our international listeners, uh, this is something that we have chosen to do and which many people in Australia choose to do before events, uh, to acknowledge the fact that colonisation happened and was very horrible and there was no formal treaty between anybody and land was essentially stolen. So in addition to this, uh, we want to take the advice of Linda Burney, who is a Wiradjuri woman, uh, who was the first Aboriginal woman to be elected to the Federal House of Representatives. So she told author Jane Tribune that whenever you hear a welcome to country, you should also do something concrete to demonstrate support to Indigenous people and sort of to pay the rent, so that is donate money to an Indigenous group. Today we have elected to donate to the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance and the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung Cultural Heritage Aboriginal Corporation. There is a link to their details in the notes of this podcast. Uh, We encourage our listeners to donate if they can, and if they can't, just to commit to learning about other ways they can pay the rent. So our focus for today, Taranora had several names. She was also called Wayla and Mary Ann. We've decided to keep her name of Taranorara, unless we are quoting someone. And just a note as well, uh, though throughout this episode we mostly refer to Indigenous Tasmanians as a collective. Like the Indigenous nations on the mainland, these were separate nations with different beliefs, practices, and languages. There were four main groups on the island who had been separated from the mainland by the Bass Strait for about 8,000 years. So originally Tasmania was a peninsula. So of these four groups, there were more language groups as well. Lamirriner. Pirapa, and then starting in the north of the island and working our way down, there was the Tomagini, the Pi Mare, and the Tiramodapana, the Parademe in Oyster Bay, and the Nuon and the Tugi language groups on the southern end. I'm very sorry for my very bad pronunciation. Um, I just, I got to put that out there. I did my best. We will probably never know exactly how many groups there were, as almost all of these languages are now classified as extinct and they are currently being reconstructed.
1: And I know one main thing about Tasmanian history. It happened in 1996 and it is not appropriate for this podcast or episode. Until the seas had risen between modern Victoria and modern Tasmania, Indigenous people had crossed back and forth between the two states with ease, which Victorians, at the rate we're going with this outbreak, will never be able to do again. When the seas rose, there were indigenous groups left on the Flinders Islands, the Furneaux Islands, and mainland Tasmania. Unlike the famous resistance fighters of the Australian mainland, like Pemulwuy from the Yura in modern-day New South Wales, Tarenorra was a relatively rare female indigenous resistance fighter. Since Australia was first colonised, indigenous women played and continue to play a key role in both resistance and survival struggles, as well as taking on leadership positions. However, there are relatively few records of female Aboriginal resistance leaders, and Tara is the only known female resistance leader from Tasmania. It doesn't mean other female Aboriginal resistance leaders didn't exist, and there are some from the mainland, but they were either struck from the European record when unrecorded by Europeans, or they are known to their people who have understandably elected to keep them private.
0: That makes sense. For our international listeners, there are many aspects of different indigenous cultures and ceremonies that are unknown to outsiders, as you need to be part of the nation and of the right clan to be inducted into those ceremonies. So think about the bit in Crocodile Dundee where the American chick gets told she can't go to the all-male corroboree and then she sneaks in and watches it anyway. So don't be the American chick from Crocodile Dundee. I mean there don't be anybody. Be in Crocodile the Dundee. American chick from Crocodile Dundee. There are Western equivalents uh, because my family isn't part of the Catholic Church, I wasn't baptised and so can't take communion or go to confession uh, since I haven't been inducted. It also reminds me of how you can't convert to Hinduism. You must be born into it and part of the caste system. So basically this is not unique to indigenous cultures but some people just like to whinge. Some people always whinge and stick their noses in. Don't be the American chick from Crocodile Dundee. So remember that old saying that history gets written by the winners? Well, historical archives until very recently were a physical reminder of that fact. The majority of Indigenous groups around Australia pre-colonisation did not use the written word, which until recently was the number one way archives recorded information. Instead, knowledge was passed through song, story and paintings. So Westerners now understand, or at least we're coming to understand, the level of detail and incredible recall present in these oral histories. In the Northern
1: Territory, there have been several cases where Indigenous stories that stretch back tens of thousands of years have been used to confirm or gain a new understanding of physical aspects of the land out there. In Central Australia, in Palm Valley nearish to Alice Springs on the lands of the Arente, there is a small oasis that has a species of palm tree that is only found in one other place in the country. That place is Mataranka, 1,000 kilometres north. That's a lot in miles, I don't know how many and who cares. Scientists only recently confirmed that these palms are genetically identical to the ones in Alice Springs, but this only raised further questions.
0: Question number one, how did these palm seeds travel a thousand kilometres overland in central Australia? So there's no animals who take that migratory pattern. There's no rivers then or now by which they could have travelled. In the 1800s, a German missionary named Carl von Strelow became fascinated with the Aboriginal group of the area, the Arente. The Arente had a story about old gods first bringing the seeds to the area many thousands of years ago. So thus we now understand that the Arente ancestors probably carried those seeds cross-country from Mataranka to Palm Valley. This story has lasted at least 7,000 years and up to 30,000 years. In a way this is an eyewitness account of human migration that has been passed down for 30,000 years. 30,000 years. 30,000 years. Conversely, the oldest written history is only from about 3,500 BC. So if you're being generous up to 6,000 BC, so that's 5 or uh, 8,000 years old. Is is that the right maths? Ancient histories for nerds and losers. Like are we not nerds and losers? What are we doing here? That's true.
1: This is not the first time a dreaming story has confirmed or enriched a scientific discovery. Just under 5,000 years ago, a meteorite fell in central Australia over modern Henbury. The local Indigenous group, the Literature, has a story about a fire devil who came falling out of the sky and scarred the landscape. They also forbid drinking the water out of those craters. It's a good thing, too, as it's polluted with iron from the media and is dangerous to drink. Look, I bet you could bottle that and sell it to Pete Evans and he would eat that shit up. Oh, He would. Big farmer doesn't want you to drink acid, Pete. <laughs> Big farmer's restricting your right to drink poison. Yeah, you should drink some rat poison. So again, this literature story is an eyewitness testimony from 5,000 years ago, plus some handy advice. In other parts of Australia, dreaming stories about objects falling from the heavens have led to scientists finding meteorites they would otherwise not know about. How much more can historians and scientists learn about Australia's ancient past if we choose to listen to our country's oldest custodians? How much more could we have learned if so many nations and clans hadn't been partially or completely destroyed over the past 200 years?
0: So we chose these two examples because they're relatively well documented and easy to research. Um, The other reason is the majority of our knowledge about the Indigenous Tasmanians is rather piecemeal. This is because they were isolated from mainland Australia for 10,000 years and were one of the most isolated cultural groups in the world and almost completely wiped out by a genocide enacted by British and European colonists from when they first arrived in the area in 1803. This is about when Taranora was a toddler. So the frontier wars between the British and Europeans and indigenous clans on the Australian mainland was already well underway. Aforementioned forementioned was already dead around the time Taranora was born. In the Tasmanian context, the Indigenous Tasmanians' resistance against the European invaders is commonly called the Black Wars, while the struggles on the mainland are referred to under the blanket term of frontier wars.
1: I forgot how, about all the facts I put in this. I'm very interested. Right. <laughs> there has been some debate amongst scholars of Australian history and scholars of genocide about whether the British destruction of the Indigenous Tasmanians specifically counts as a genocide Raphael Lemkin, a Polish Jew and lawyer who lost over 40 family members in the Holocaust, used the example of the near-complete destruction of the indigenous Tasmanians as one of his examples when he developed the concept of, and eventually the term, of genocide. He also drew heavily on the Armenian Genocide. The term genocide was officially introduced when Lemkin published a book in 1944. Lemkin described genocide in part like this, quote, A coordinated strategy to destroy a group of people, a process that could be accomplished through total annihilation as well as strategies that eliminate key elements of the group's basic existence, including language, culture and economic infrastructure, That is, Lemkin was saying an ethnic group did not have to be completely physically wiped out to make it count as a genocide. Rather, the key elements that make them a group, language, beliefs, infrastructure, has to be destroyed. Lemkin had been interested in the concept of mass atrocity since he was a child when well, he learned about Nero throwing Christians to the lions, which sounds worrisome until you realise I had a list of favourite serial killers at the age of 12 and I turned out okay.
0: Can you give me my spare key back, please? Uh, no, No reason. No reason, okay. So what about the Indigenous Tasmanians? Holocaust and genocide scholar Tom Lawson wrote a whole book, The Last Man, discussing how the British, explicitly the British, committed genocide in Tasmania. The crux of Lawson's contention is this, quote, Genocide was the result of the British presence in Van Diemen's land. This does not mean that the British government or its agents explicitly planned the physical destruction of Indigenous Tasmanians. They did not. But genocide was the inevitable outcome of a set of British policies, however apparently benign they appeared to their authors, end quote. I'd like to note that, unlike Lawson, in this episode referred to the people committing the acts of genocide as Europeans, the British and Australians. Though the British government were technically in charge of Tasmania and Australia, by this point in Australia's colonisation, there were people of European descent born and raised in Australia, as well as people from Europe, not just the Brits, who were migrating to Australia, so presumably because of the world-class coffee and theatre scene. People do love a good flat white. Did you know that not have flat whites in America? America has many problems, but that is pretty high up there. Yeah, they, um, they call them lattes no
1: foam, but they're flat whites because they're idiots for other reasons too. British policies that contributed to the genocide included violent confrontations with the Indigenous Tasmanians when the Indigenous Tasmanians either did or were perceived to be aggressive towards settlers. If Indigenous Tasmanians were on what the settlers felt were their farmlands, they would be shot at and often killed. Indigenous Tasmanian women were taken from their families and forced to prostitute themselves to white men. This led to mixed-race children being born without a chance to connect with their Aboriginal cultures. Indigenous Tasmanian children, both full-blooded and mixed-race, were taken or adopted, adopted with air quotes, were taken into foster homes or orphanages or European homes and taught to be servants and made to abandon their cultural practices. Finally, as the Indigenous Tasmanians were killed or forced onto increasingly smaller land during the Black Wars, they were relocated to a miserable model village called Waibolina on Flinders Island, where they were meant to be taught to be good, God-fearing European-style folk. There, many died. Of exposure, loneliness, European-born illnesses, murder,
0: and suicide. So, Taranaroa loses. Spoiler alert, I guess. With the level of knowledge and culture lost after the Tasmanian genocide, though, we all lose. With the violence in Australia's past yet unrecognised and reparations made, we all lose. Australia is poorer for our past atrocities and change won't come until we grapple with what non-Indigenous people have done to this country and come to terms with our sins. We're going to play a short clip here from former Prime Minister, the Honourable Mr I-want-to-do-you-slowly, Keating's Redfern speech from 1992, which marks the beginning of the International Year for the World's Indigenous People.
2: The starting point might be to recognise that the problem starts with us, the non-Aboriginal Australians. It begins, I think, with an act of recognition. Recognition that it was we who did the dispossessing. We took the traditional lands and smashed the traditional way of life. We brought the diseases and the alcohol. We committed the murders. We took the children from their mothers. We practiced discrimination and exclusion. It was our ignorance, ignorance and our prejudice, and our failure to imagine that these things could be done to us. With some noble exceptions, we failed to make the most basic human response in this year with the report of the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in custody which showed with devastating clarity that the past lives on in inequality, racism and injustice, in the prejudice and ignorance of non-Aboriginal Australians and in the demoralisation and desperation, the fractured identity of so many Aborigines and Strait Islanders.
1: We're going to stop there, as the then-new report tabled by the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody was not and has never been acted upon. There have been over 400 Indigenous deaths in custody since the report was tabled and nothing has changed. Hence the rage and pain we still see in Australia, in part renewed by the murder of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer in May 2020, and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter
0: movement. Some of my family came to Australia on the First Fleet, when the British decided that shipping all of their convicts to the other side of the world was an excellent example of out of sight, out of mind. I don't know what my ancestors got up to once they arrived. They didn't come here by choice, but that doesn't mean they didn't make choices that negatively affected the owners of the land they found themselves on. But whether they personally committed atrocities or whether they were some of the few white people that tried to establish equal relations with Indigenous Australians, they still benefited from colonisation and the destruction of the frontier wars. Generations later, Nicola and I still benefit from this legacy. For example, when gold was taken from the lands of the Wutherong in Victoria, which is now modern-day Ballarat region, and Melbourne used that wealth to make beautiful buildings and become, quote-unquote, the world's most livable city, we benefit from that to this day, to the detriment of Indigenous folks. Or another angle, the vast majority of the modern medical system is predicated on Western understandings of white bodies, and also a Western interpretation of soul and mental health. When people of colour are underrepresented in medical studies, it means these groups of people are overlooked, even though they may have different responses to certain treatments or medications. This is also repeated, uh, as, as an example, with the overrepresentation of men's bodies in medical studies, meaning women too are also understudied in medicine. So, in this way, many aspects of mod- modern medical systems have racism and exclusion baked into them at their core. This is a legacy of colonialism and racism that continues to exist, to white folks' benefit and the detriment of Indigenous people and people of colour's health. Alright, let's get to business and kill some British people.
1: Tara Norrera was born around 1800 in what is modern-day Tasmania as part of the Tomajini people. By all accounts, Tara Nora was a bit of a firebrand even before she became a resistance fighter. In the 1810s, she was either abducted by Indigenous Tasmanians from the Port Sorrel region and sold to white sealers on the Strait Islands, or banished by the Tamagini and so willingly went with the sealers to the islands. On the top 10 list of places I don't want to be in Australia, the Strait Islands now is about number five. What's number one?
0: Canberra. Hey, I love Canberra. <laughs> Sealing and whaling was a very large part of Pre-Federation Victoria's economy. Thankfully, whaling is well out of fashion now in Australia, especially when we all kind of spot Megaloo and just lose our collective shit. As long as he doesn't go
1: into Japanese
0: waters. Yeah. In the early years of British occupation in Tasmania, there were only a few thousand colonists, mostly men, on the Tamar and Derwent rivers. There was relatively little violence between the groups that was officially recorded. Again, going back to the uh, silence in the archives, we don't know, but. As the Napoleonic Wars in Europe wrapped up, this led to an influx of settlers coming to both the mainland and Tasmania. So eventually there were six times as many white men as there were white women. As such, Indigenous women were often taken as sexual prisoners. We say sexual prisoners. Some of these women were taken on as wives by the white men, and maybe they had relationships where there was some equality and genuine love, but the majority were transactional relationships at best. Marriage and sexual interference with Indigenous women had the add-on effect of reducing Indigenous people's abilities to procreate and pass cultural knowledge onto their children. Remember, this is a component of what Lambkin's conception of genocide looks like. Finally, Indigenous people had less resistance to the famous Lama-derived European sexually transmitted infections, such as syphilis, and European illnesses like the common cold.
1: Tara did not escape sexual abuse and violence during her time on the islands. Additionally though, while on the Bass Strait, Taranora bided her time and took notes on key aspects of European culture. That is, she learned English and she also took very close notice of how firearms were used and operated. Foreshadowing. Five-second foreshadowing. In 1828, Taranora managed to get back on country, where she gathered a group of Indigenous Tasmanian men and women from various clans from all the nation groups. With this group, she stole firearms and trained them all in how to use them. Guns in hand, they launched a guerrilla war against the colonists. Similarly to the Viet Cong during the Vietnam War, this mixed group of Indigenous Tasmanians... Should we call them Taranora's army? I don't think so. Army seems too big. And a name like the Indigenous Tasmanian resistance implies a united, coordinated front. They did want to strike out at the white men, who they called the Lutatalan. Maybe the anti Anyway... Taranora's guerrilla army made of members of different clans was unusual as often the Indigenous Tasmanian groups had very little to do
0: with each other. It probably shows the desperate situation they were in. So Taranora's mixed group of brigands was in a similar position to the Viet Cong. They might have been outgunned despite having firearms and later on they were outmanned, but they had a deep and unique knowledge of country in the region which befitted guerrilla attacks. So outgunned and outmanned, but not outplanned. Never get involved in a land war in Asia, never invade Russia in the winter, and never get involved in a bush war you can't afford to lose. A key tactic Taranora developed came from her observations of the sealers on the Bass Strait Islands. She instructed the Tasmanian warriors to attack the Lutatawan when they were at their most vulnerable, that is, just after they had fired their guns and before they were able to reload. In addition to the guns, the Tasmanians used spears and waddies. Waddies are like heavy throwing clubs, used in hand-to-hand combat. Apparently, though, some Tasmanians were good enough with them to throw them into the air and bring down birds, which is just like, damn, I can't walk without falling over.
1: Taranora also applied guerrilla tactics to colonists' homesteads, instructing the warriors to kill the Europeans' sheep and cows. Good idea. Hooved animals are terrible for the Australian bush, and this is an issue affecting us even today. Hashtag shoot the Brumbies, hashtag yes, that is what I said, hashtag let them die quickly and relatively painlessly. Now, by some accounts, Taranora was a fierce and fair leader, directing the majority of her warriors' energies against the invading Europeans for revenge against what they had done to their men, women, and lands. Some accounts do report on Taranora becoming a bit of a would be dictator, instructing war against both Europeans and against other Indigenous Tasmanians who didn't join her in fighting the Europeans. Again, not sure. She definitely did attack other Indigenous Tasmanians, and this damaged the chances of a successful resistance being mounted against the British. United, perhaps, maybe the Indigenous Tasmanians could have pushed the British back into the Bass Strait, at least temporarily. Perhaps she attacked other Indigenous Tasmanians who were cooperating with the Europeans, and this was just another aspect of guerrilla warfare, Or perhaps they were also enemies but not allied with the British, or perhaps she did want to unite all the Indigenous Tasmanians for one big resistance fight against the white man. I do wonder if this idea of her as a wannabe dictator has been developed to discredit and undermine her work as a leader of Indigenous Tasmanians and Indigenous resistance.
0: You mean white men try to discredit women and people of colour by making them out to be irrational and violent? This is shocking information. Like,
1: considering that she
0: was apparently always a bit of a
1: firebrand, I think she was a you're with us, you're against us kind of person. Logically speaking, there is no use letting, you know, neutral Indigenous Tasmanians who might aid Europeans go unpunished. If Taranora and her group's best asset was their knowledge of country, the last thing you really want to do is leave other people who can help the Europeans in the bush, like
0: to help them. It's brutal, but it's logical. It's war. It is war. Like, you've got to do what you've got to do, I guess. In this case, definitely. You know, sometimes war is not always justified, but... This this definitely was. This is a justified war. On the European side of things, this was a bit worrisome. Violence between settlers and the Indigenous Tasmanians was increasing. The official tally would eventually say that from 1824 to 1830, the Indigenous Tasmanians killed 223 Europeans. While from 1824 to 1831, official records claim that colonists killed 306 Indigenous Tasmanians. This is almost certainly an underestimate. The archives are written by the winners. Indigenous Tasmanian numbers were being decimated by european brought illnesses, rape, kidnap and inter fighting. That said, the Indigenous Tasmanians did have a much better knowledge of country and how to survive out in the bush than the British did. A strong and effective leader, as Taranora seemed to be, was a danger to British control over the island. Colonel Robertson, the air quotes here again, protector of Aborigines, became aware of Taranora and her warrior band and blamed her for attacks both on Europeans and disparate Tasmanian indigenous groups. Robinson had come from Britain to be a builder. Wow, what a qualified person for cross-cultural colonial interaction there. (laughs) Some of his information came from white men, and in other cases indigenous Tasmanians gave him intel. Robinson wanted Taranora captured, and her resistance stopped. Robinson blamed Taranora and her warriors for the majority of unrest on the island, and feared her ability to provoke revolt. Robinson went to the Steelers
1: for information, and they told him that Taranora would sometimes stand on a hill to provoke the colonists. She would abuse them and goad them into coming and then being speared. The sealers said, quote, she liked to look as she did a black snake. For our international listeners, black snakes, or tiger snakes, like most snakes in Australia, are dangerous. I'm a domestic listener and I still don't get it. Well, would you like to be wandering through the bush and come across a tiger snake, but the snake has thumbs and hands and a gun and has killed dozens of your people? Nah. Exactly. Robinson pursued Taranora across Tasmania. In September 1830, he and his men were nearly attacked by her warriors. In part as a response, in part as an aspect of the larger effort to rid Tasmania of the Indigenous Tasmanians, the Governor of Tasmania, George Arthur, mounted one of the largest military operations yet seen in colonial Australia, the Black Line. A mixed force of soldiers, servants, who were in actuality convicts, and free settlers, totalling around 2,200 men, formed three divisions and formed a front about 300 kilometres long to push south and east through Tasmania to trap the last of the Indigenous Tasmanians. They also had Indigenous Tasmanian guides with them. The
0: black line did not work. Vast tracts of Australian and Tasmanian bushland even today remain impenetrable and dangerous to even experienced hikers. Vast tracks of land. Hey, did they ever find those hikers who went missing and they were from Druin? No. Ah, the one with the drone. I don't think they did. I, I don't know. Okay. i haven't sorry. But the Australian bush in 1830, the overconfident British had little chance. This kind of reminds me of all the British people I've met who think SPF 15 sunscreen is adequate in the Australian summer. The rugged terrain, swamps, poor lines of supply and bad maps meant the line was broken and had wide gaps which the Indigenous Tasmanians went through with ease. The dense scrub also made it hard to use firearms. The supply lines were broken too and this meant many of the British men had no shoes and ruined clothes. Exactly how you want to fight a war on territory that isn't your own. The Black Line had one victory against the Indigenous Tasmanians. In late October, they killed two Indigenous Tasmanians and captured two others. So
1: we can probably glean from this, morale would have been pretty friggin' low on the Black Line, and morale is very important when you're fighting a war.
0: And I don't care that the British morale was pretty low. Don't give a shit.
1: Indigenous Tasmanian numbers by this point were also very low. One man estimated only 300 or so Indigenous Tasmanians remained on Tasmania's main island, yet Indigenous Tasmanian resistance attacks against the colonists continued both in front of and behind the black line. And that's how you know your front isn't working. (laughs) George Robinson estimated around 700 Indigenous Tasmanians were still on the Tasmanian main island. He claimed he could rid Tasmania of the Indigenous Tasmanians and resettle them all on smaller islands in the Bass Strait. If I say Tasmania one more time, I'm going to punch myself in the face.
0: There is Tasmanian is here a lot.
1: You can't avoid it, though. George Robinson did have some success by making the effort to learn local languages and cultural practices, but he still felt the Indigenous Tasmanians needed to be, air quotes, civilised. His plan was the removal of the Indigenous Tasmanians to the model village at Waibolena, where they could learn to be European and so, in his opinion, become civilised. This cultural destruction would later be used in Lemkin's design of what constitutes genocide. So
0: where was Taranora? How can you go to the effort to learn multiple languages and different cultures and then still conclude that a group of people is uncivilized? Have you met the British? I have. Mm. Unfortunately, I come from the British. <laughs> this is just another example of white people ignoring things that were right in front of their face to fit into their own narrow worldview. If you haven't read it yet, go read Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe because it shows just how many times European invaders came across perfectly managed farmland or fisheries or villages and just kind of went, huh, this wheat has conveniently harvested and stacked itself. How handy. Sorry, sorry, I got sidetracked. What was your question? Where was Taranora? Tasmania? Oh. In late 1830, Taranora... In late 1830, Taranora... In late 1830. (laughs) I love this album. (laughs) In late 1830, Taranora was challenged for control of the warriors, or in battle, and lost. She escaped to Port Sorrel and was forced to go back to the Bass Strait Islands with her two brothers and two sisters. There she was taken to the Hunter and Bird Islands and given. Given to someone known as Norfolk Island Jack, to his friends. But we're definitely not friends, so we're going to call him by his actual name, John Williams. John Williams? Not that John Williams. Williams took Taranarara, who had been renamed Mary Ann, to Forsyth Island, further and further away from her country and the majority of her people. They did not know she was Taranarara, the famed resistance leader. This loss did not break her. By December 1830, Taranora was plotting to kill a sealer. If Taranora was born today,
1: I reckon she'd fit in pretty well on Sea Shepherd. It's not about the seals, but the seals would probably benefit. She was plotting to kill one of the sealers. However, air quotes, protector of the Aborigines and air quotes, Robinson, had agents watching out for her, and so Taranora was taken further afield to Swan Island. She was still undercover as Mary Ann at this point, but when she arrived to Swan Island, she was revealed as Taranora by some of the Aboriginal women who were there and because apparently she had a very distinctive dog named Whiskey. God, Whiskey's such a good name for a
0: dog. I would call Um. my dog Whiskey. The news that so-called Mary Ann was Taranora delighted Robinson. He felt with her captured, peace peace, peace could finally be brought to Tasmania and all resistance would stop. Said Robinson, quote, the dire atrocities she would have occasioned would be the most dreadful that could be possibly conceived, End quote. I'm going to stop you right there. You know why? There are records of
1: white men taking an Aboriginal woman's baby from her, burying the child in the dirt up to its neck and doing things to the baby's head till it died. Fuck you, Robinson. What the hell kind of shit could Tara Nora have done that was more of a dire atrocity than that? Across the frontier was the British and those terming themselves Australians killed men, women and children in droves. They deliberately shot pregnant women. Colonists repeatedly and deliberately gave Aboriginal people poisoned food. British, European and Australian settlers raped, burned and murdered Aboriginal people without justification and were never brought to justice. But the Aboriginals are the ones committing dire atrocities. Fuck you, Robinson, the horse you rode in on and the people you worked for, especially the Tasmanian governor.
0: And especially considering Taranara's apparent atrocities were committed during a guerrilla war to save her people. And we know Taranora had no real chance of winning anyway, so fuck you, Robinson. Fuck you, Robinson! After her identity was discovered, Taranora was moved, under Robinson's orders, to Gun Carriage Island, also known as Van Cithart Island. I assume that's from the Dutch, like her Van Diemen. I yeah, believe it was Dutch. that, that would make sense. Van Diemen is Dutch. Yeah. She was isolated there because Robinson believed if Taranora could be contained, all the, quote, mischief, end quote, she had caused would stop and resistance would be over in Tasmania. As with many other Indigenous groups around the world, the Indigenous Tasmanians and Australians were particularly susceptible to Europeans' alien diseases. Not alien diseases because they're from another planet. Taranora became ill and died of influenza on the 5th of June 1831 and she was probably buried on the island. Sorry. In 1910, grave robbers visited Guncarriage
1: Island and in response, the islander group active in the area, that is surviving Indigenous Tasmanians and Aboriginal people who'd been sent to those islands, moved as many of the ancestors' bodies as they could to other islands where they could be protected. Terranora's last resting place is unknown, if she has one at all. Some of the Indigenous Tasmanians practiced cremation before colonization, but as the British took Tasmania and the islands, this practice was mostly abandoned in favour of burial. Today, there are no official memories of Taranora, at least none we could find, as we Victorian scum are barred from even looking at Tasmania and could only look on the internet. Do you reckon my Tasmanian
0: blood could, like, get me over there? No. Yeah, fair. My, my Melbourne blood is won out and we are shunned. <laughs> For many years, and even today, it is claimed that the Indigenous Tasmanians, Tasmanian Aboriginals, are completely extinct. This was not helped by the release of a documentary called The Last Tasmanian in 1978, which claimed Indigenous Tasmanians died out. Uh, The documentary was also criticised for erasing the lived experience and knowledge of actual Indigenous Tasmanian people. So, not a good source there. There are from 6,000 to around 25,000 people who claim some Indigenous Tasmanian heritage living on the island. The last two officially recognised sort of quote full-blooded indigenous Tasmanians were resistance leader Truganini, who lived from 1812 to 1876, and Fanny Cochrane Smith, who lived from 1834 to 1905. We're going to look at Truganini in a bit more detail in a later episode, but indigenous Tasmanians continue to work on reclaiming their culture, language, knowledge, and place names to this day. <sighs>
1: Sorry, I'm just, like, taking a moment. You
0: take a moment. It's a lot. This history is a lot.
1: Fanny Cochran Smith was officially recognised as the last full-blooded Indigenous Tasmanian by the Tasmanian government after Truganini's death and received a gift of some land in recognition of this. Wow, thanks. Here's the land we stole from you. Let's give it back. All of the Indigenous Tasmanian language groups, and there were up to 16 in Tasmania alone, have been lost, along with sways of culture thousands of years old. Sure is great you got a lump of land, though. Since the 1990s, the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre has worked tirelessly with their communities to reconstruct a version of the language that was spoken on Tasmania for 10,000 years and destroyed within a century of the arrival of colonists. Of the modern reconstructions, the main one is today called Palawakani, but... There were no native speakers of any Aboriginal Tasmanian dialect left in the 1990s and so the language was reconstructed in part from colonists' diaries and word lists and an incredibly delicate wax cylinder of Fanny Cochran Smith speaking a few words recorded between 1899 and
0: 1903. There are no official memorials to Taranora, though there are a few posthumous artworks about her. There are some frontier war memorials in Australia, including one in the heart of Melbourne's CBD in honour of two Indigenous Tasmanian men, Tuna and Mulboihina, who were extradited to Melbourne by George Robinson and hanged. The Indigenous Tasmanians had originally been brought from Tasmania to Victoria to help, air quote, civilise the Aboriginal tribes of Melbourne mostly consisting of the Kulin Nation, made up of the Wurundjeri, the Boonwurrung, the Wathurrung, the Turugong and the Jar Jar peoples. And like for people who don't understand, the idea of bringing
1: Indigenous Tazis over to Victoria to communicate with Kulin Nation groups, it's the equivalent of taking someone from India who speaks only, you know, Hindi and dropping them in the middle of like North America Mm -hmm. to communicate with the native, what they would term Indians there. There was ten thousand year gap between them. They are a completely different civilizations.
0: And also, if you want to like um, see a visual image of just how many language groups in Australia there were, look up like the language group map. Um, actually, we might put a shall we? We'll put a linky link in our in our show notes. Let's put a and linkally, just see link. See how many language groups there were living in Australia before Europeans turned up.
1: Oh, I forgot about this <laughs> bit it's where I destroy my relationship with the Australian War Memorial officially. Great. <laughs> <laughs> in addition to that memorial in Melbourne, which is at RMIT if you want to go find it, there are some smaller memorials around Australia. However, there is little to no discussion of the frontier wars at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. This is justified by them claiming that A, these wars occurred before Australia federated and B, they were primarily waged by the British again before Australia came to be. Australia's a nation, I mean. We and many, many other historians and academics question that. First, because it's a big Boer War section at the Australian War Memorial, and that war started in 1899. Secondly, though the frontier wars on both mainland Australia and the Black Wars in Tasmania were certainly started by the British, these battles, massacres and skirmishes continued up into the 20th century, by which time Australia had certainly federated, developed its own political and military culture and practices, developed an Australian literature and art style, developed an accent and started memorialising wars. For example, Australia's favourite war, World War I, finished in 1918 and the Australian Imperial Force dissolved in 1921. The Australian War Memorial itself was originally conceived of before this in 1916 by Charles Bean. The Coniston Massacre, an officially sanctioned massacre of Aboriginal people, the Anmachere, the Kachachere and the walpiri very sorry, was led by the Northern Territory Police and occurred in 1928. Official records claim 31 Aboriginal people died, but we now know up to 200 Aboriginal people were murdered. Again, this was 1928. And guess what year construction started on the Australian War Memorial? 1929. The Australian War Memorial describes itself today as, quote, a shrine, a world-class museum and an extensive archive. The memorial's purpose is to commemorate the sacrifice of those Australians who have died in war or on operational service and those who have served our nation in times of conflict, end quote. We know some staff and historians who work there definitely feel the Frontier War should be memorialised. However, the Australian War Memorial as a whole is reluctant to consider any changes to their policy. I hope they enjoyed the half a billion dollars they were handed by the government in 2018 and perhaps throw a handful of that cash at memorialising Australia's longest running conflict. Someone doesn't want to intern there again, do they? <laughs> oh, fuck me. Anyway. It's just Pompey Elliot didn't kill himself because he wasn't promoted, Hannah. It's not the reason why. <laughs> We're leaving this bit in.
0: I, I understand. You you did spend a long time researching Pompey Elliot. You, you 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 have a right to a rant, and it's a very valid rant. So you, you you're good. Do you need do okay. you need a tea? Continue. Do you need a hug. I can't give you a hug. No. It's illegal at the moment. <laughs> no, I don't know. No, I can't keep recording. In a similar vein, Anzac Parade, a road in front of the War Memorial, is lined with a series of statues and memorials in honour of the many conflicts Australia's military has taken part in, as well as some of our historical allies.
1: And our historical enemies. They have got a Turkish memorial there as well. They
0: do.
1: Lovely. There's one at the Shrine in Melbourne too. I do like that one. I met the sculptor once when I was drunk. (laughs) That's very on brand for you. No, legit. I went to this play at the St Kilda Playhouse because someone gave me tickets. It was very good. It was there was a wall in it. Um, the name will come love back it. to me when we're done. And then um, it was the day before the the sculpture was due to be unveiled, and so I trotted over there after a couple of gins with my friend who I'd seen it with. And the sculptor was finishing it off like that the is day pretty before
0: fat. it was due. <laughs> yeah, I do you love that? It's a nice sculpt. I do like that. It memorial. is a good memorial. It is a good memorial shits me that the women's memorial is so far from the uh, shrine, but that's a story for another time.
1: That's my head hitting (laughs) the
0: wall. There is no memorial for the frontier wars on Anzac Parade. There is the Aboriginal Memorial at the National Gallery of Australia, which is made of 200 painted hollow logs erected in 1987 and 1988 on the bicentenary of the British arrival in Australia in 1788. This memorial is in honour of all the Indigenous people who lost their lives defending their land against European incursion. John Mundine, OAM, was the conceptual artist behind the memorial. As we discussed at the top of the show, there have been some small efforts made to promote reconciliation and recognition of Australia's violent past through stuff like Reconciliation Week and the Redfern Speech. I was also going to say Sorry Day and then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's 2008 apology to the Stolen Generations, but that was in response to a different, further act of more intimate violence and genocide against Indigenous people. All settler Australians have a very long road to walk to come to terms with the violence of our forebears. In addition, the British Imperial War Museum has no references to the Frontier Wars, as it only memorialises and collects items from the beginning of World War One and onwards. Interestingly, though. There are some items in their collection related to the Boer War. Hmm, just going to leave that there as a fun fact that definitely has no other meaning. They do have some items relating to indigenous Australians who fought in the World Wars, so maybe? No, that's not good enough. But they're not about,
1: like, fighting against them. It's when indigenous Australians fought alongside settlers. Very yeah.
0: different narrative than when you're sort of saying, look at our allies that we t- totally didn't kill. Yeah. <sighs>
1: This is the first episode we've done on an Australian conflict, that is a conflict with or about an Australian, and we felt it was really important to begin with the war modern Australia began on, as opposed to our common foundation myth relating to World War I. All Australians, especially white Australians, continue to benefit from historical acts of war and racism against Indigenous Australians all over the country, and this must be taken into
0: account as we move forward as a nation. As we said at the top of the show, we donated to the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance when we made this episode, and we also elected to donate to the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung Cultural Heritage Aboriginal Corporation. If you are an Indigenous person or of Indigenous descent, we invite you to contact us and let us know if there's anything that we could have done better or differently and share your thoughts with us. We hope you found this episode interesting and informative. So thank you for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening. We leave you with the
1: audio recording Fanny Cochran made in 1899 of herself singing and speaking in a Tasmanian language. It is the only known recording in existence of one of the original spoken languages of the Tasmanian Aboriginals by a native-born speaker. As a descendant of Fanny, Liz Chu told the ABC, quote, These recordings are songs of survival and represent the continued struggle for rights and recognition, unquote. These recordings were made on fragile wax cylinders and so the audio quality is quite poor but Fanny's voice is such a rare and important piece of history that needs to be shared. Thank you for listening. I've
0: been Nicola and I've been Hannah. See you next time.